Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies. My name is Kellen McFall from Newman University, and I'm your host for the podcast. Every month or so, I interview the author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I'll be interviewing Robert Gerworth, author of the book Hitler's Hangman, The Life of Heydrich, published by Yale University Press. Gerworth's biography is part of an impressive recent wave of biographies of Nazi leaders. All are characterized by a thoughtful engagement with recent work on the Holocaust all attempt to situate their subjects in the world before 1933, and all attempt to depict their subjects as having had real choices to make, that alternative paths were in fact possible. Gerworth's biography of Heydrich is also distinguished by its particularly effective writing. He synthesizes great amounts of information gracefully, while preserving space for anecdotes that illuminate and add color. The result is both enlightening and fascinating. I had a great time talking with Robert this morning. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, and welcome back to New Books in Genocide Studies. Today, I'm interviewing Robert Gerwart, author of a wonderful new biography of Reinhard Heydrich titled Hitler's Hangman. The book is a masterpiece of biographical writing, clear, compelling, and insightful. In some sense, its great accomplishment is to leave the reader with a sense of wonder, or perhaps I should say distress. Heydrich, of course, was one of the drivers of Nazi Jewish policy during the Second World War. But, according to Gerwart, Heydrich lived much of his life without any desire to mistreat or kill massive numbers of Jews and other people. Moreover, his transformation was not inevitable, but contingent, driven by specific life choices and encounters that could have gone very differently. It's a troubling story, magnificently told, and I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing Robert talk about it. So, Robert, hi, how are you doing today? How are you, Kelly? Very nice talking to you. Thank you so very much for talking with us. Um, why don't we just start the interview by uh, asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, of course, I'm very happy to do that. Um, I am, as you very kindly pointed out in your introduction, a historian of 20th century Germany uh, with a specific interest in uh, the history of political violence, of which there was plenty uh, in Germany's violent 20th century. Um, and I started off, I suppose, by working on political culture uh, in Germany from the foundation of the German nation state in 1871 uh, all the way uh, through the end of the Second World War in 1945. Um, I was interested in history and the history of modern Germany, in particular from a relatively young age onwards. Uh, I was born in, in Berlin uh, in the 1970s, so during the time of the Cold War, and it was very difficult actually not to be interested in 20th century uh, history, uh, given that in that place in, in Berlin, history really surrounds you. And after the end of the Cold War, you could uh, see uh, for the first time, in my case, uh, Eastern Germany as well, with all its uh, scars of uh, the Second World War that um, had not been uh, removed in a major way as uh, had been the case in in the West. So from a relatively young age onwards, I decided to uh, study history uh, with a focus on on these particularly violent years between the First World War and uh, the end of the Second World War. 
So how did you come to um, decide to write a biography of Heydrich? Well, it had always occurred to me that um, he was one of the big sort of neglected figures. I mean, we can't really say that the Nazi leadership has been neglected uh, or that the Third Reich has been a neglected subject in the literature. Um, in fact, there are more than 40,000 books that have been published on the Nazi dictatorship, including in uh, more recent years, uh, a, a large number of very good biographies that seek to um, bring together uh, biographical approaches with larger structural questions about uh, German society uh, at the time. This includes, of course, uh, Ian Kershaw's magisterial uh, biography of uh, Hitler. It also includes the, um, the recent biography of, uh, uh, of Himmler by Peter Longerich and a couple of others. And um, Heydrich really is one of the neglected figures in the Nazi leadership. Um, and I always thought he was a particularly fascinating figure, given that he uh, is assassinated when he was still quite young, but already one of the most powerful people in Nazi Germany. He was uh, 38 at the time of his assassination, but had already accumulated a number of key positions um, within the expanding Third Reich, from being the head of the Gestapo and the Reich Security main office, the kind of think tank of Nazi policies of persecution and genocide um, to becoming, just a few months before his assassination, uh, Hitler's uh, deputy in the occupied space of Bohemia and Moravia, um, in the Czech lands, um, which was of central importance, of course, to, uh, to the Nazis because uh, of its armament production and because they firmly believed that this was uh, a space to be included in the future Third Reich. So uh, for all these reasons, I think he's a, he's a crucial figure. Uh, of course, he's best known for his, uh, his central role in devising uh, policies of persecution against the Jews, of being the uh, chairman of the infamous Wannsee Conference, uh, in January 1942, and uh, for being in many ways the central figure in uh, in the in the planning and execution of the Holocaust until the summer of 1942. The the other biographies you mem you mentioned Kershaw's and and and, and Longreich, uh, those are both wonderful books. They are also extremely long and detailed and thorough. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about the challenges and opportunities of writing a life of Heydrich that's relatively compact. Well, I did, of course, have the advantage that um, Heydrich died in 1952, <laughs> uh, three years before uh, Hitler and Hitler, and that those final years of the uh, Second World War are particularly eventful. So I didn't necessarily have to, uh, to write about those. I think that... Um, Kershaw's biography of Hitler in particular also amounts to, in some ways, a total history of yeah. Nazi Germany, which is uh, not necessarily something that I, um, I I wanted to attempt here. And I think that um, he has done it in, in such a wonderful way that this was uh, no longer necessary. Um, what I am focusing on in this book is, I think, someone who will be lesser known uh, to many readers uh, than, say, Himmler and Hitler, precisely because he... Um, uh, he dies in 1942. People know uh, most about his assassination, but not so much about his his early years, his youth, his um, path towards becoming one of the most powerful figures uh, in, in Nazi Germany. And for all these reasons, I thought it would be interesting to uh, look at a man who also had a, a somewhat unconventional uh, path towards Nazism. I think um, even by 1933, very few people 
uh, would have been able to predict that uh, he would uh, grow into that um, uh, very dark uh, role uh, in the Nazi dictatorship, um, or that even the, the Gestapo uh, or the uh, SD, the uh, security service of the uh, SS, would become such a powerful institution um, it, over the course of the Second World War. And of course, the SD is very much his, his uh, brainchild. Um, uh, in fact, the SD starts as a one-off, as a one-man uh, enterprise with him being the only employee. Let's, let's start with that basic kind of claim, which, which I found very persuasive, that, that no one would have, would have imagined that Heydrich's life would have turned this way. How does he grow up? What's his family background? Well, he is in some ways similar to Himmler in the sense that he comes from a, a very privileged uh, background. Um, his uh, parents are both uh, professional musicians. In fact, his maternal uh, grandfather is already a very successful uh, musician and founder of one of the most uh, successful and uh, most widely acclaimed uh, conservatories in Germany. Uh, his father then uh, opens up a similar business in the Prussian city of Halle. Uh, again, a great commercial success. It is a time when uh, middle-class families begin to invest very heavily uh, into in the um, musical education of their, of their children. So uh, he really uh, grows up in a both cultured uh, and uh, affluent environment. He's uh, very protected, very sheltered, um, and, and privileged in, in every uh, possible sense. Uh, all of that is is not um, fundamentally unusual. I mean, many many uh, senior figures in the SS, in particular, uh, would actually come from similar backgrounds. Would also be um, university graduates, which Heydrich is not, uh, for reasons which we can discuss later on. Um, but uh, he's certainly coming from a, a cultured and well-educated uh, family background. Um, his family is not particularly nationalist or anti-Semitic either. Um, so any attempt to sort of trace his um, uh, his, his anti-Semitism, which he very clearly uh, embraces uh, in the 1930s and, and spearheads in many ways, uh, kind of genocidal anti-Semitism, it is impossible to trace that back to uh, his early childhood or to his uh, sort of parents' influence in any way, shape or form. Uh, what is interesting, perhaps, and the only c connection in some ways to anti-Semitism, is that um, his youth is uh, overshadowed to a certain extent by uh, a rumor that his uh, family is actually Jewish. Uh, this uh, rumor uh, first uh, sort of emerges um, when Heydrich is already uh, a teenager, and it stems from, uh, it is, originates uh, from a pupil of uh, Heydrich Sr.'s conservatory who's expelled and then who uh, generates in return in an act of revenge uh, this rumor uh, that uh, Heydrich's paternal grandmother is Jewish um, because she had the, uh, the Jewish-sounding name uh, Zeus. And this um, rumor actually sticks with Heydrich for the rest of his life. It is uh, perpetuated by, by various people uh, who have had an impact on, on his life and his career. Uh, later on, uh, even after the Second World War, um, by some former SS associates who tried to um, turn the, the argument on its head in a way, uh, sort of coming from a very clearly uh, anti-Semitic position themselves to say that only a Jew could come up with something as devious as the Holocaust. <laughs> uh, 
So uh, this is sort of the, in some ways, the logic of um, of the an inverted logic of uh, of anti-Semitism. Um, but throughout Heydrich's career, this um, this rumor resurfaces time and again. And um, when it first emerges, his parents actually sue uh, the person who has spread it and, and wins um, uh, win that law uh, case and uh, court case. Um, and I think they do it less because they are fundamentally uh, anti-Semitic, uh, but because in a climate um, where latent uh, anti-Semitism is omnipresent, uh, a businessman like uh, Heydrich Senior has to be has to worry about being seen as a Jew, as someone who only does that for it runs his business for money. So that's I think the the, the main reason why why he decides to um, to sue the person. Uh, who's spreading that uh, rumor? Um, but apart from that, there's no indication that the the Heydrich family is is particularly anti-Semitic. If anything, uh, because um, Heydrich's uh, father is 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 a Catholic, uh, and his mother as well, uh, they are part of of a small minority themselves uh, in the overwhelmingly uh, Prussian Protestant uh, town of Halle at the time. So they would have had to have um, some understanding what it means to be a part of a of a small and uh, since the Kulturkampf of the 1870s, often beleaguered uh, minority in Germany. And, and remind us when he's born. He's born in 1904, which uh, is relatively uh, interesting. I mean, people like Michael Wild, uh, who is a wonderful uh, historian of the of the Third Reich, uh, have pointed to that generation born between 1900 and 1910, uh, the so-called war youth generation, a, a generation that was too young to actually fight in the First World War, uh, but to fantasize uh, about that war, about that conflict, about participating in that conflict uh, without being able um, to actually engage in, in, in physical combat. Um, they would romanticize the experience of the war. Uh, and and Heydrich is very much part of that uh, generation. He's too young uh, to be uh, drafted into the uh, German army during World War I. And he experiences the German defeat and uh, the subsequent uh, revolution in 1918-19 as a teenager. Um, all of these events, of course, leave, uh, I think, a very strong impression uh, on him. But uh, again, Heydrich is unusual in the sense that he, uh, again, does not uh, perceive the experience of the revolution uh, and the defeat of Germany as a sort of fundamental turning point that uh, transforms him into um, a Nazi in the waiting. Um, lots of other senior, future senior uh, SS and uh, Nazi figures um, do actually portray this either retrospectively or in their diaries and letters um, written around 1918 as a major turning point. Hitler himself, of course, always refers to uh, the defeat of Imperial Germany in 1918 as the moment of his political awakening, um, where where his homeland, his chosen homeland, Hitler, of course, is Austrian, but he uh, adopts uh, Germany uh, as his uh, fatherland, where that fatherland is defeated. And uh, Heydrich, I think of course, perceives this as a, as a major uh, slap in the face. And he does uh, participate in uh, sort of FICOR activities, if only in a very passive uh, way. He never uh, fires a single uh, shot at a, um, a, a communist uh, insurgent uh, during that period of the revolution. Um, but he does become uh, politically more interested. What is, I think, quite remarkable, though, is that unlike uh, most of his future peers in the SS, he does not join any of the staunchly anti-Semitic, staunchly right-wing 
uh, organizations that mushroom all over Germany at the time. And so the war, how does the impact of the end, the, the defeat in the war and the aftermath of the war affect how he thinks his life will go career-wise and education-wise? Because he ends up in the Navy shortly after that, correct? That's correct, yeah. I think that's less a result of um, Germany's defeat in the First World War, um, but a result of uh, the changing fortunes of his family's business um, uh, in Halle. So his father's conservatory uh, finds it more and more difficult already during the First World War to attract uh, students. Now, with Germany's defeat and the subsequent uh, inflation and major economic crisis that Germany is facing, uh, fewer and fewer people can afford to send their children to a private institution and to pay for the musical education of their children. And the Hydras are really feeling the effects. Before 1914, before the outbreak of the First World War, um, they they had a lot of uh, income. Um, and uh, Heydrich Sr. invested a lot of that income into the family business again. Uh, after uh, 1918, and particularly during the major economic crisis, during the hyperinflation uh, of, the, uh, of 1923, the, the, the business is really uh, feeling the effects of, of the lost war and of the economic recession. This is already becoming clearer and clearer um, in, in the first post-war years. And as a result of that, it becomes evident that um, Reinhard Heydrich will not be able to inherit the family business, that he has to look for an alternative uh, career. And he finds that in the Navy, uh, which uh, is, again, perhaps somewhat unusual because Halle does not necessarily have a direct connection uh, uh, to the sea. Um, And people have speculated for quite some time why he would have chosen uh, that particular career path. Uh, I can't say that I can offer um, the definitive answer to that question because of a lack of of sources on that issue. But of course, after uh, the end of the, the First World War and after the uh, the, the self-sinking of the German uh, fleet, uh, being an officer, was still a very highly prestigious uh, career path uh, for a German uh, to pursue. And I think that is um, that is what attracts uh, Heydrich in, in some ways. Also, of course, the um, the lack of uh, combat experience in the First World War here is is a way of, of, of sort of discovering uh, the world on a boat, um, experiencing, you know, having adventures, uh, being... Um, having chosen a respectable uh, career for the eldest son of of a middle-class family in Germany at the time. And he spends a short time in the Navy, and then um, he's kicked out. And that's a rather interesting tale. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think, I mean, he he certainly didn't have the best of times in the Navy. Um, And that is perhaps an interesting sort of addition to what I've already said. He, um, within that staunchly nationalist uh, milieu of the German Navy after 1918, which is partly staunchly uh, nationalist because they want to overcompensate for the fact that the revolution of 1918 started uh, in the Navy, in Kiel. Um, And within that staunchly nationalist milieu, Heydrich is widely seen as a liberal, as someone uh, who is not sufficiently nationalist, um, which is, of course, uh, quite ironic given his uh, future uh, uh, career. Um, 
and I think it's it's an important period for him because uh, it makes him more aware of his uh, of his weaknesses as an apolitical person. But what is the the, the, the crucial turning point in his life? Indeed, comes when he um, when he meets first of all his uh, future wife. Uh, Lena von Osten, who at this point in the later 1920s is already uh, a staunch uh, supporter of Hitler, one of the so-called early supporters of Hitler, which means that she uh, started to um, to support Hitler and to become a member of the of the Nazi Party even before um, the Nazis experienced their breakthrough in the wake of the Great Depression after 1929. Uh, she has a major. Uh, ideological influence on him and would later, after his uh, dismissal from the Navy, uh, direct him uh, towards the uh, the Nazis and particularly towards the uh, SS. Um, what brings about his uh, dismissal is uh, the fact that at the time when he's already seeing uh, his future wife, Lena von Austen, um, he's already uh, in involved in a relationship with another woman who considers herself engaged uh, to Heydrich. Uh, so when he gets engaged to Lena, uh, he sends out a message about the engagement to everyone he knows, including that woman who, uh, as a result, experiences a, uh, a nervous breakdown and informs her apparently uh, very influential uh, father who um, uh, submits a, uh, an official uh, complaint to the uh, Navy leadership. Uh, as a result, he is then summoned uh, in front of a uh, naval honor court um, I think in that situation all that Heydrich had to be worried about was um, uh, maybe demotion or a slap on the wrist uh, but what was even worse than the, the, the fact that he was simultaneously engaged to two women uh, was the fact that he behaved in a very arrogant way towards the honor court so instead of um, admitting uh, that he was wrong and then instead of protecting the reputation of the woman in question, uh, he accused her of completely misrepresenting uh, the um, the relationship, that he had never um, made a promise of uh, engagement. And uh, he also behaved very arrogantly towards the members of that honor court. Um, as a result, and uh, this was, was quite a, a big step at the time, the, uh, the court recommended to the uh, commander-in-chief of the German Navy uh, that Heidegger should be dismissed. Um, the commander-in-chief, um, Admiral uh, Reda, follows uh, the suggestion and, um, and dismisses uh, Heydrich from active service. So what that means is that Heydrich, at the height of the Great Depression, uh, finds himself, this is we're talking about 1931, finds himself without a job. Uh, his uh, family business back in Halle is, is, is almost bankrupt at this point. So uh, his, uh, his own family can't support him financially either. And now under the influence of his, uh, of his future wife, um, what happens then is that he hears about a job offer um, or a job vacancy, uh, rather, in, uh, in Munich um, as a sort of staff officer uh, within the relatively small and insignificant SS. Uh, so he's uh, being put in touch with uh, Heinrich Himmler, um, and uh, they agree uh, to meet for a, a sort of inter job interview um, outside Munich. Um, uh, they meet, uh, and uh, Himmler is immediately impressed by uh, the young ex-naval officer uh, who he meets in, in, uh, in, on that fateful day, uh, where their uh, well, quite deadly uh, kind of cooperation uh, takes its uh, beginning. Um, 
And uh, he's not only impressed by the, the sort of physical appearance of Heydrich, who, of course, looks very much like uh, the ideal uh, Nazi, but also um, impressed by his military bearing. Um, the meeting is actually based on a misunderstanding. Uh, uh, Himmler thought that, um, for a variety of reasons, thought that uh, Heydrich had served as an intelligence officer. And uh, he is trying to recruit for uh, a person who would be able to set up the SS's own intelligence service, the future SD. Uh, so even though he finds out relatively quickly that uh, Heydrich is, 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 uh, is a communications officer and not an, an intelligence officer, um, he still decides to, to hire him. And uh, from then onwards, uh, Heydrich gradually becomes the, the most uh, important uh, associate of Himmler. He, um, although Himmler never had officially had a, a deputy, Heydrich fulfills that role uh, for the next uh, years until 1942. Yeah, I, I'm struck by your your discussion of his relationship with Himmler uh, and their close partnership. What is it about the two that made them get along so well, and and how did that working relationship work? Well, many historians in the past have always suggested that there was a rivalry between these two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in, in coming to that assessment, they have relied uncritically on the statements of former SS officers after 1945, who tried to construct this um, um, rivalry, if you like. They always suggested that Heydrich was so ambitious that uh, ultimately he wanted to uh, replace um, Himmler. Um, I've come to a very different conclusion. I think that the success inadverted uh, commas, the success of the SS is very much down to um, these two men and the way in which they collaborate and uh, cooperate. I think that they have complementary talents in some ways. Uh, uh, Himmler being the sort of visionary of the SS, the the ideologue, the person who uh, came up with certain policy ideas, um, but also someone with um, arguably a lot of Uh, social skills, you would say. Um, One wouldn't Mm -hmm. guess that, but I I think that comes through very clearly when you read the the excellent Himmler biography by Peter Longerich. Um, People always saw him as someone who's very awkward, but actually he's very clever in his dealings with um, his own family, if you like, with his own SS family. Um, He plays the very sort of fatherly role within the SS. He reprimands, but he also sets presence. He promotes, he makes sure that, you know, problems like alcoholism are resolved to a certain extent. So he does play a sort of fatherly figure, and he's also very good at maintaining uh, strong connections with other powerful Nazis, something that is uh, essential, of course, in the Third Reich. Um, Heydrich, by contrast, is not the most social character. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he doesn't like social gatherings. He doesn't particularly like attending um, you know, m- meetings with other uh, senior figures. But he is a very talented organizer. He's someone uh, who... Um, is needed by Himmler for the implementation of his policies. That's something he's very good at. And he's also um, very good at identifying uh, young raw talent, which he sort of increasingly brings into um, into his orbit and places them in his own sort of power apparatus in the, you know, running the Gestapo, particularly later on running the Reich Security Main Office and DSD. So these are all sort of talented um ambitious young graduates. I mean, what, what is always, what I always found quite striking was the, the relative youth of these people. Um, uh, you know, people in their 30s who suddenly have an incredible amount of, of power. 
um, and and hydrogen encourages that and uh, encourages initiative, encourages these these people, almost like a like a modern manager, uh, to show. Uh, initiative in their radicalism in order to rise through the ranks and he rewards initiative so i think i think he's a uh, that 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 perhaps helps to explain why these two men are are, are relatively successful um, because by 1933 by you know when when hitler comes to power it is absolutely far from clear that the ss will play a major role after all um they are still subordinate to the uh, to the sa at this point um yeah, I was struck because you, you talk about his leadership quality qualities and you describe his leadership style as impulsive and bullying. And I think you quote somebody as saying it was despotic. Is that is, is his reward of initiative and his opening up of opportunities to the people who work under him? Is that why people will work with him so successfully anyway, if, even if perhaps not happily? Well, if you if you look at the statements that people make, both after 1945 but also during the war, um, you do get the very strong impression that um, people fear him and admire him at the same time. Mm-hmm. He's um, he's someone who or certainly people within the SS. Uh, he's certainly someone who actually lives the the sort of ideals that uh, the SS is preaching, in the sense that you know he doesn't drink and smoke, which is very unusual at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is uh, he's someone who gets up very early in the morning and works very hard and and uh, and is very active in terms of sports and uh, really uh, tries to tries to live up to the uh, the expectations of uh, of an SS officer, um, so he wants to lead by example, and I think that people admire that in a certain way. At the same time, uh, he's also a very despotic uh, leader. He's someone who um, who who punishes uh, his his officers if they don't do what he um, what he wants them to do. And I think that sort of creates a specific atmosphere within within the SS leadership uh, core, uh, where people because they want to kind of anticipate. Uh, almost anticipate what Heydrich wants from them. They um, they are inclined to use more and more radical means to to achieve that. Yeah, and that's a really part of important part of your argument uh, as we go along. Let me pause here because if I'm reading the book right, he seems to have something of the same ambiguous relationship with his wife that that their marriage was stormy and and yet Lena, at least at the end, claimed to have been devoted to him. How would you characterize his marriage? Well, I think when they first meet, they are they are very much uh, in love, and 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 Lena has a, as I said before, a, a strong influence, in, in intellectual or ideological influence mm-hmm. on him, um, because up until the late nineteen twenties, Heydrich is, is perhaps best described as an apolitical person. He's more interested in a in his career uh, than in any specific uh, ideology. Um, so I think in the beginning there's you know a lot of love and also a lot of um, um, influence uh, from Lena on on Reinhardt. Um, I think that changes increasingly when uh, Heydrich's career in the Third Reich takes off because uh, he's an absolute workaholic. He's hardly ever at home, and that changes. I mean that, that changes even more dramatically, of course, after the beginning of the Second World War when he really is never at home at all. Uh, and she complains about that frequently and quite rightly, I suppose, um, about his absences, but also about uh, her suspicion that uh, he has affairs all the time, which is something that is impossible, of course, to um, 
to to prove in a meaningful <laughs> way. I mean, there are lots of rumors and lots of you know, former SS associates would 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 uh, support that uh, statement that um, Heydrich uh, had lots of affairs during the 1930s. But it's it's difficult to say that with certainty. I mean, after all, we're talking about the the head of the criminal police and the Gestapo. So if <laughs> any files on that or any <laughs> public statements made before 1945, uh, they are quite likely to have been destroyed. Um, you, you, the next section of the book is titled Becoming Hydrish, um, which seems to me in some ways one of the really critical points you make is that he becomes a quote-unquote Nazi after he joined the Nazi party. Can you talk about how and why he became Heydrich? Well, I think he realizes quite quickly that he's been given a second chance. Um, 1931, the year of his dismissal, really is the um, the lowest point of his life where he has no future. Uh, his marriage is actually uh, being questioned. They're not married yet. And so his parents-in-law, uh, of course, view the prospect of uh, their daughter getting married to an unemployed ex-naval officer uh, with great skepticism and say, you know, you have to get a, a life and a career first uh, before you can marry our daughter. Um, but also after 1933, the sheer boundless opportunities that present themselves. Um, so there is an element of careerism, but uh, I think the Nazi, Nazi ideology also helps him to understand why his life collapsed in certain ways, in economic ways, but also other ways. Before 1933, he can blame uh, the Weimar political system, he can blame the Jews. So uh, Himmler's binary um, ideology, sort of a worldview that divides everything into black and white, uh, helps him actually. Uh, It helps to uh, reduce the complexity of life and uh, makes it possible for him uh, to say, you know, this political system um, is responsible for um, the economic collapse of my father's business uh, for the end of my career and so and so on and so forth. And we also, I think, have to understand that from uh, 1932 onwards, he is um, surrounded by people uh, who have worked for the Nazi movement for a long time. So he's the newcomer. He's someone who hasn't got a, an ideological or political track record. Many of these people have served in, in five corps. Many people have served time in prison uh, for their political convictions. So in order to demonstrate his commitment to the case, uh, to the course of Nazi, of Nazi uh, ideology, um, he needs to be more radical than everyone else. Uh, he understands that very quickly. Is also... Um, that time when the rumor about his uh, sort of Jewish uh, family origins uh, resurface. So all of a sudden, uh, people talk, even within the Nazi party, about him uh, being a quarter Jew, which is, of course, well, if not a death sentence, certainly something that would have terminated uh, his career uh, and therefore sort of ended his second opportunity uh, to make a life uh, for himself. So I think uh, all these points are actually quite quite important in explaining why Heydrich becomes uh, such an increasingly radical uh, figure. He is really reinventing himself as a model Nazi uh, in the 1930s, a process which I think lasts up until 1936. Um, So what I'm trying to argue against, I suppose, is to see Heydrich purely as as an opportunist, as someone who who, who grasps this second chance and uh, doesn't actually believe in it, which is... um, 
what lots of historians have actually said in the past that he is um, uh, he's a special case because he doesn't believe in Nazi ideology, um, and I don't think that's true. I think you know from the mid nineteen thirties onwards, he had convinced himself that this new movement, um, which he was supporting actively, uh, and um, for which he was increasingly willing to die, even uh, that that um, ideology behind it was was correct. Um, and that he should do whatever he could to um, to further um, the uh, the Nazi movement. And he has rather an extraordinary rise in the 1930s from a position of of relative insignificance to to being one of the major power figures in 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 the regime. How does that happen? Yeah, no, I mean his his rise is quite remarkable. Here again, I think it is important uh, to. Uh, look at Heydrich and Himmler together because they are climbing through the ranks together. Again, something which I would say contradicts the argument that there is a tension between them. Uh, there was no particular reason why Heydrich uh, should have uh, tried to undermine the position of Himmler because uh, to a large extent he owed his entire career uh, to uh, to Himmler. And he was extraordinarily loyal and Himmler knew very well that he could rely on that loyalty, um, and you know both people never forgot that actually until the until the very end, until 1942. Um, so, yes, absolutely. I mean the the ascent of Heydrich is is uh, is rather remarkable. Uh, again, we have to bear in mind that he was only 38 at the time uh, when he was assassinated in Prague. Uh, so, uh, you know, for someone in his position, someone who was then in charge of uh, the Holocaust, of Jewish prosecutions, uh, but also of um, the main instruments of uh, suppression in uh, in Nazi Germany and in the occupied territories. Um, that is quite remarkable. I think that's uh, that's the kind of career that is only possible in a in a in a totalitarian dictatorship. And is this ascent a kind of strategic? approach by Heydrich? In other words, does he does he set out at some point, sit down with himself and make a career goal of becoming one of the most important players in the Nazi regime? Or is he responding to opportunities as he goes along? Or, and here I want to recognize that you, you we can't ignore the pairing of Heydrich and Himmler, but is this intentional or is this just a kind of reaction to circumstances as they arise? Well, he's certainly a very ambitious figure, but I, I don't think that there was a master plan uh, in any yeah. shape or form. He is, he is responding to circumstances and to opportunities that uh, present themselves uh, along the way. And uh, he and uh, Himmler are coming enough to seize these opportunities when they present themselves. Um, I don't think there, there is, a, is a master plan at all. I mean, uh, looking or describing uh, alive in Nazi Germany also always has to has to sort of reckon with and 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 describe the circumstances under which these careers are possible. Um, what is interesting, though, is that the SS leadership, um, I think, demonstrates or rather constitutes a rather uh, different um, leadership from the established civil service. Yeah. Uh, if you look at um, the age structure alone, you'll see that most of the leadership core of the SS is much younger uh, than the rest. And of course, as a result of that, uh, we know from 
sociologists of violence, that uh, people who are young tend to be more radical than those who are older. I think in part, at least, helps to explain uh, the, the, the radical initiative uh, which these people uh, you know, present. And for them, uh, there is a, is a historical uh, opportunity, particularly after the outbreak of the Second World War, um, to completely redo the map of Europe and to uh, fight and destroy the perceived or real enemies of Germany once and for all. And they want to seize that uh, opportunity. So there is a sense of historical uh, opportunity, which they are determined uh, not to let go. I, I was just going to ask, the, the, I, the, I, I was interviewed Donald Bloxham a, a couple months ago, and he has a interesting section in his book about the Nazi project. Does Heydrich, by the end of the 30s, have a kind of coherent vision of the Nazi project? Well, I think that the nature of the Nazi project changes constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, even Heydrich and Himmler, at the beginning of the Second World War, did not anticipate the Holocaust in its mm-hmm. real form. I mean, uh, of course, to be absolutely uh, sure that I don't get uh, misunderstood. I mean, they never have uh, any positive plans for the Jews of Germany or uh, Eastern Europe. Um, but they believe in uh, often violent, often forced uh, expulsion as the uh, the major aim of SS Jewish policy. And that becomes more and more dramatic um, and much more violent and genocidal over the course of the Second uh, World War. Uh, as you know, um, lots of books have been written about the exact timing when uh, uh, sort of local genocides become a, a pan-European genocide. And it is perhaps impossible to put your finger on an exact date. Uh, it is a gradual process um, that uh, I think uh, really is rehearsed in some ways in Poland, but then becomes in uh, a reality uh, increasingly after the the beginning of Operation Barbarossa, after the German attack on the Soviet Union. Yeah, and I was going to ask you to do something which may be nearly impossible in a, in, in a short interview like this, but you do a wonderful job of kind of outlining the points at which those ideas and visions evolved. Can Can you maybe briefly summarize the evolution of these ideas from 1938 to 1942 in Heydrich's mind and execution? Well, of course, uh, again, Heydrich is responding in many, way to, uh, many ways to opportunities, to the, um, the, the, the changing historical realities, to the outbreak of the Second World War. Uh, first of all, um, the outbreak of war with uh, Poland, um, which is, I think, a very important uh, watershed for him because uh, he is nominally responsible for resolving the Jewish question. But with every expansion of the Third Reich, uh, the uh, problem, you know, self-created problem, uh, which is for which he is responsible, uh, is getting bigger and bigger. Um, so for someone like Heydrich, this is, of course, a major issue because he wants to be perceived as someone who is uh, extraordinarily successful. And he finds it... Um, he finds it impossible, and also the, the, his Jewish advisors, his entire team that is working uh, on on the so-called solution of the Jewish problem, is um, is looking for more and more uh, radical uh, solutions with every uh, expulsion scheme that is failing. Uh, so you have these various schemes of uh, and ideas for uh, forced uh, expulsions of Jews from Germany or occupied territories into. Um, into uh, areas where expulsions are difficult to uh, realize, uh, from you know uh, eastern Poland to uh, Madagascar, and it is really in response to the growing, on the one hand, the growing 
um, number of Jews uh, under uh, Nazi uh, control, and on the other hand, the lack of any other feasible um, sort of solution uh, to that uh, alleged problem. Um, that they come up with more and more radical solutions, uh, namely uh, executing them first in, in, in uh, certain uh, regions uh, and then later on to a pan-European uh, genocide. And I was struck by the degree to which the, uh, the different, at least short-term visions about how how the Jews should be treated and what role Jews should be played, Jews should play in this new German empire the way in which these different visions uh, among the various power players interacted and frustrated Heydrich's efforts to solve this Jewish problem. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, again, it's um, a very important part of the, uh, of the story. Um, what, we, what we do here, I mean, the Nazi Germany has quite rightly been described as a sort of jungle, um, yeah. as a, a polyocratic uh, jungle. Um, as a political institution in which um, the the rivalry between uh, various agencies, various uh, groups, splinter groups, various uh, factions within uh, the Nazi party and uh, players uh, in the field, in the occupied territories and back home in Berlin, radicalize the entire process, uh, largely because radical solutions seem to uh, appeal to, to Hitler, who, uh, like Heydrich, likes problems to go away uh, when they arise. Um, so uh, ultimately this favors the SS, which is always proposing the most radical and, uh, again, in adverted commas, uh, scientific uh, solutions to problems and tries to resolve these problems in a silent way as opposed to the rather sort of noisy anti-Semitism of the early Third Reich. Um, and I think that's, uh, that certainly helps to explain these processes have, have been described in, in, in wonderful uh, detail um, by other academics working on the Holocaust in the past. Uh, but what I was trying to bring back into uh, the story, I think, is, is uh, individual agency. Uh, yeah. Because over the past decades, uh, structural history has taken over completely so that ultimately individuals don't seem to matter at all uh, anymore. And I was trying to um, combine the very important findings of structural history uh, with uh, the individual life story of the man who's ultimately in charge of, of, these, uh, of this escalating violence. And, and as you did so, I was, I was amazed to take a brief break from the high politics Somehow Heydrich manages to take, I guess you would call them vacations from his job and go be a fighter pilot. How does that happen? Well, I mean, he's, uh, he's doing that, uh, even though uh, Himmler quite explicitly told him not to. Uh, but here again, I think we're returning to uh, the, the importance, perhaps, of the First World War and the... Uh, the absence of actual fighting experience. Uh, Heydrich quite often describes uh, his own role as uh, that of a garbage man, of someone who sort of operates in, in the shadows, someone who, who cleans up the, the Reich and the occupied territories um, and removes uh, all the undesirables uh, from that space. Uh, but he's never someone who's going to you know, win medals for his actions in the field. And he wants to, uh, through heroic gestures i would i call them in my book uh, he wants to be part of the part of the action part of the part of the war 
particularly at a time when it still looks as if uh, the Wehrmacht uh, is, is going to win uh, that conflict. So he wants to have part of the action while that's still possible. Um, and, of course, that creates all sorts of problems because uh, uh, there is a, a real danger that he could be captured um, and that he could be captured, uh, particularly on the Eastern Front, which would uh, uh, result into all sorts of uh, uh, all sorts of problems. But he is, I mean, he is, and I, I should I should add that I mean, he is. He always perceives himself as a as a man of deed as well. You know, this is something that the the nationalist right always celebrated from the 1920s onwards. Men uh, who don't only talk about uh, change and action and, and violence, but who actually implement it. And he he admires that, and he uh, he's he's very much uh, someone who who wants his his own team to actively participate in. Um, in this changing world, uh, and who he sends out all the senior uh, officers of the security main office into the field to prove themselves, uh, not only to be uh, desk uh, perpetrators, which is, of course, the image that lots of people had for a long time when they thought about the, the Holocaust and the ESS and the men responsible for, uh, for the planning of it. Uh, I think the opposite is the case. I mean, most of these people uh, are out there in the field commanding uh, SS task forces and... Uh, have real blood on their hands uh, in, 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 in a sense. And so, perhaps somewhat unexpectedly, given his past career, Hitler suddenly appoints Heydrich Reich protector of Bohemia and Moravia. Um, why did Hitler do that, and how did Heydrich's policies shed light on his broader ideas about where Europe should go? Well, I must uh, confess I was puzzled by that decision for a long time um, because, uh, you know, from Heidrich's point of view, it is on the one hand uh, a promotion uh, in the sense that he is now only directly responsible to, to Hitler, only answerable to, to Hitler as his deputy in um, in, uh, in, in Bohemia and Moravia, in Prague, uh, which, of course, in a sort of typical Nazi fashion, is a responsibility that he takes on in addition to all his other roles. Uh, so it's an accumulation of various offices that, uh, that characterizes the Third Reich very much so. Um, he is sent to Prague, I think, for two reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, there is an increase in resistance uh, in, in that space, in that uh, economically... Uh, very important uh, space, and Heydrich, or rather Himmler, Hitler, believes that uh, Heydrich is the right man uh, to put an end to resistance activities, and he's absolutely right in the sense that uh, uh, Heydrich cracks down very hard on the on the local resistance and um, and arrests and executes uh, lots of the the leading figures uh, in the Czech resistance movement. Uh, I think there's a second reason, uh, and that is that uh, it, the decision to send. Uh, Heydrich to Prague uh, coincides roughly with uh, Hitler's uh, decision to uh, remove the Jews from the German Reich. Um, and the first three um, German cities that he chooses are Berlin, uh, Vienna and Prague. Um, and uh, so it is perhaps not, not a coincidence that he sends uh, the man in charge of uh, Jewish deportations uh, to Prague at this very moment. I think this is the second reason why why he's being dispatched there. Um, Heydrich, as usual, uh, goes to this, uh, takes on this task with a lot of energy. Um, he flies back and forth between uh, Prague and Berlin several times a week, uh, often with his own plane. 
and uh, tries to fulfill both uh, roles at the same time, which uh, seems to be quite successful. At least um, he likes to portray his own um, his own actions as extraordinarily successful in sort of uh, ruling the um, the protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia, not only with an iron fist, but I think with a combination of of uh, pressure. And incentives. So he's trying to convince his um, uh, his subjects in uh, his Czech subjects to work uh, with the Reich rather than against it, uh, and that they would receive rewards, um, monetary, uh, economic rewards uh, in response to that. And what I found, uh, aside from his efforts to, of course keep the Czech resistance down and encourage the Czechs to work hard to produce munitions and other industrial supplies for, for Germany. What I found most interesting about this was his vision of Germanizing the protectorate as, as part of a broader vision for what a German empire might look like. Yes, I think it's important actually to connect the um, the Holocaust or the... the, the mm-hmm murder of each and every Jew in Europe, which by the time that uh, Heydrich is, is firmly um, installed in, in Prague has become uh, a reality. So it's, it's already well on its way, uh, even though the final details are only uh, decided on in the, in the spring of 1942. Um, but senior Nazis like Heydrich and Himmler uh, know that this is only the beginning of uh, a more general bloody unweaving of the peoples of Europe. And the main project is, of course, the Germanization of the uh, future territories of the Greater German Reich, particularly the uh, ethnically very diverse territories uh, of East Central Europe. Um, so Germanization, of course, relates to the much bigger uh, project of, of um, identifying those parts of the Slavic populations of Eastern and Central Europe who might be Germanizable, who can be sort of retrained and who have uh, in the obscure uh, view of the Nazis sufficient genetic racial qualities uh, to be subsumed into the German people Um, and those who would either have to live as slave laborers or be killed off right away. Um, And in some ways Heydrich is starting during his time in Prague uh, this very process uh, um, not in the sense that he actually kills large numbers of uh, those Czechs he considers uh, ethnically or racially inferior. Um, he doesn't want to upset the uh, populations behind the front at a time when Germany hasn't won the Second World War. Winning the war is a priority, uh, of course. But he begins to to uh, classify um, the Czech population um, under various covers and to try and to identify those sections of the Czech population that could be absorbed into the German people after the after uh, Germany's victory over the Red Army. So the story of the ex, uh, of the assassination is really quite extraordinary, not just from a, a, a narrative kind of thriller standpoint, but from the politics of why the Czech government in exile decided to attempt the assassination. Can you tell us a little bit about why and how Heydrich, that decision was made and how Heydrich ends up being killed? Yes, the uh, story of the assassination is, uh, is a very intriguing one, not least because every party involved in the assassination plot um, refused to accept responsibility after 1945, uh, particularly because of the serious ramifications the assassination had for the civilian population uh, of Bohemia and Moravia, uh, notably, of course, the, the German um, 
execution of uh, several people, even loosely uh, associated with the assassination plot, people suspected or uh, people who even um, approved uh, in conversation with their neighbors of the assassination, uh, a protracted process of, of prosecution and persecution that um, resulted or culminated in the uh, complete destruction of the Bohemian village of uh, Lidice. Um, I think there are two principal parties that uh, are behind the uh, plot to kill Heydrich. Interestingly enough, the home resistance itself is not at all involved. Uh, they uh, only learned about the assassination plot um, a few days before it happened, and they tried their very best to stop it, uh, notably because they knew that the uh, consequences would be very dire. Um, so the two principal parties involved are the Czech government in exile under uh, Edward Benish uh, and the Special Operations Executive um, in London. Uh, these two uh, parties uh, have vested interests in a high-profile assassination, um, partly because the SOE um, has not had any major successes in uh, inciting um, resistance activities behind the German lines, which was the purpose why they were uh, founded by Churchill in the first place. Um, and the Czech government in exile is concerned that uh, it looks currently, or from the, from the vantage point of 1941, uh, that the Czechs are not doing enough uh, to work against the Germans in forms of resistance activities and so on and so forth. Um, we have to bear in mind that uh, neither Britain nor France had revoked the Munich Agreement at this point. So uh, it also looked in late 1941, as if Germany was actually going to win the war. So um, uh, Benesch's post-war project of re-establishing uh, Czechoslovakia as a democratic state uh, was really in danger at this point. Um, so they decide to work together and uh, quickly decide that uh, the, the right person uh, to kill would be Heydrich, after all, the, uh, the head of the security services of, um, of Nazi Germany. Uh, this would really send out a sign uh, to the Western Allies and the wider world uh, that the Czechs were doing their bid. Um, so after much preparation, uh, they dispatch a team of uh, parachutists uh, who then spend uh, some time uh, in the protectorate with uh, false identities and eventually decide that um, the ideal point, uh, the ideal place to kill Heydrich would be uh, a hairpin curve um, in the outskirts of, of Prague, where uh, he, he, he passes every uh, day on his way to work from his country estate outside of Prague. Um, he never uh, travels with any, any security, so it's only him and his, uh, his driver. And uh, because of the uh, pleasant weather in the spring of 1942, uh, he uh, also uh, drives a convertible open-top car. Uh, so he doesn't really take many uh, precautions for someone in his position uh, particularly if we bear in mind that he's someone who's also in charge of uh, drafting security uh, regulations for all uh, senior figures in the, um, in the Nazi party and DSS. Um, so he disrespects these, these um, regulations completely, and uh, Hitler, uh, after the assassination, is very upset about that and uh, uh, orders uh, senior Nazis to take the necessary precautions. Um, he... Uh, the assassination actually almost failed because uh, although Heydrich is injured, um, he, he doesn't die straight away. He only uh, dies of blood poisoning uh, a few days later. Uh, so if there had been uh, penicillin or antibiotics um, at the time, he probably would have survived uh, the, the assassination attempt. 
Um, but he didn't, and he, he died, and the Nazis um, tried to reinvent him as a, a martyr of the, of the national cause, as a sort of, um, yes, uh, the, the ideal SS-man, as someone who, who died in active service uh, for the creation of a better world. And really, what we see over the next couple of years, all the way up until 1945, is that he's, he's a sort of, he becomes an iconic figure for every aspiring SS officer, the sort of the, the example that everyone tries to live up to. His pictures are uh, hanging in every um, in every tra- on every training site in uh, for the SS, and uh, he's really the model that is held up as, as someone as, as, as someone who uh, lived by SS laws and died by SS laws. So after spending what I have to believe was a lengthy amount of time, kind of deeply immersed in the life of Heydrich. What broader lessons can that life teach us about Nazism and the Nazi period? That's a very good question. I think um, what I was trying to do with this book, actually, was to um, move a step back from sort of these general um, uh, statements about lessons to be learned. What I think we can see here is that under certain historical circumstances, people who come from... Um, a background that doesn't necessarily prepare you for uh, a career in genocide uh, can become genocidaires um, if the historical conditions are right. Um, and of course, it takes a certain personality to become someone like Heydrich. It takes a great deal of uh, you know, ambition, uh, false idealism, um, but also um, you know, meeting certain people certain very influential people in his life, like his wife, like Himmler, um, who I think are mentoring him throughout the 1930s until he, he becomes the, the, the kind of person that he is during the Second World War, uh, the ultra-convinced uh, Nazi uh, and SS man uh, who wants to set an example and who's willing to use ultra-violence to radically reform or uh, transform um, the world and the ethnic makeup of Europe. Um, so... I think what I'm trying to portray here is an individual life within the historical circumstances of the um, first half of the 20th century. That's kind of the ambition of the book. We've done a wonderful job. And, and for our listeners, there's way more in the book than we were able to get into this interview. And I know I've, we've taken a lot of your time, Robert. I would just ask you at the end to, to tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm for a brief moment I'm moving away from the history of the Second World War and to the uh, history of the First World War, or more specifically, I'm writing uh, a history of the aftermath of the First World War, Hmm. uh, an extremely violent uh, period, actually, uh, during which up to four million people die in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, uh, if you include the Russian Civil War. And I think that many of the origins of the Second World War can actually be found in that immediate post-war period in the sense that you have uh, violent expulsions, not only of uh, Ottoman Greeks, um, but also uh, ethnic violence is really becoming uh, the norm rather the exception. Uh, So you have uh, a period which I think is formative uh, for a new logic of violence that then becomes dominant in the Second World War. That sounds like a wonderful book in the making. Um, I want to thank you again for all of your time and uh, wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks. All right. Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Robert Gerwarth, the author of Hitler's Hangman, The Life of Heydrich. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and I invite you to come back next time when I'll interview Ron Suni about his recent edited volume about the Armenian Genocide. 
In the meantime, if you'd like to listen to previous podcasts, you may do so through iTunes or directly from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. Until next time, I hope you have a great month.